Happy New Year to you all. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Philippians 3, 1 to 14. Just going to do a one-off sermon on New Year's Eve. Philippians 3, 1 to 14. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, we thank you for the end of 2017. Lord, I suspect for some it was a challenging year. For others, it was a joyful year. Yet others may be in between. We ask, Father, that whatever lessons that we ought to have learned in 2017, they will stay with us in 2018. Whatever sinful mistakes that we were a part of in 17, we pray we would confess and repent and you would empower us to greater godliness in 18. We pray, Father, that whatever heights of growth in our spiritual walk we may have enjoyed in 17, there would be the greater heights of knowing you, of loving you, of serving and worshiping you in 18. Father, as we look at Philippians chapter 3, would you take your inspired and errant word and encourage us and challenge us by it and through it? And Father, may we not just be hearers of your word, but indeed doers as well. Thank you for your word. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Mark left work a bit early. He had been studying for his theology final all semester long, but he thought a little last-minute review would not hurt. So he spent the last few hours for that theology final just going over his notes. Frankly, he was quite confident. He felt certain that he would get an AA+, especially with the curve. He had seen some of the weaker students, and he was quite confident that with a curve... A-plus city, bring it on. When he arrived at the classroom, he noticed some of those weaker students doing that last-minute cramming. <laughs> Whatever, they probably needed. It won't really help. Then when the prof walked in, everybody put their notebooks away. Everybody expected the prof to hand out the final. Mark was ready. But instead of handing out the final... The prof began a half-hour review. All right, that was a little unexpected, a little unnecessary, but there are weaker students, Mark thought. Maybe it'll help them, not likely. The first few moments of review, easy peasy. He knew it all was not a problem. But after about five minutes, he realized that the review was not on class notes. There have been 3,000 pages of assigned theological reading. Mark had done it. Probably most of the other students had not. But even for Mark, it was a little bit difficult. Most of the words were multisyllabic. A lot of them were in Greek and Latin and German, as many theological words are. And he sweated just a little bit, but then he realized, you know what? Even if I only know half the material... 
Nobody else in this class even knows a quarter of it. With the curve, A plus city. No doubt about it. Finally, after the half-hour review was over, the teacher began to hand out the exams. The teacher handed them out one at a time and started at the opposite side of the room where Mark was sitting. Mark could hear a stir. Then a little bit of glee and laughter and joy. Mark thought, what is this? Have these guys just given up? Is it something they smoked? I mean, why are they happy? And then he got his exam. And he quickly looked at page one and three and five and all the way to the end of seven, and he was steaming hot. He could not believe it. The questions were beyond him. He could tell that. But the teacher had filled in the answers for every single question. At the very end, it read as follows. This test is beyond all of you. Some of you have thought to yourself, you'll do well based on a curve. There will be no curve. The creator of this test knows that none of you can pass. And so the creator of the test, me, has taken it for you. Every answer I have given is 100% correct. You get an A+. Plus. This is grace, with a capital A. This is grace. A few of you right now are mad. You're saying to yourself, you worked hard, you studied hard, you even read the 3,000 pages. How dare I fill in the answers? But look at the questions you can't pass. If you get a little better F than somebody else, you still get an F. But because of grace, I've given you an A+. You're right, it's not fair. It's grace. Jesus told a parable like that, didn't he, in Matthew 20? You remember the parable. Jesus talked about a wealthy landowner. The landowner had some work to do on his plantation. He went to the depot where there were a number of workers Supply and demand heavily favored the landowner. There were way more workers than there was necessary work. Although a fair day's wages is a denarius, he could have offered a quarter of it, and he would have had individuals accept it. There just wasn't enough work. And so the the landowner took a group and he said, I will pay you a denarius for 12 hours of work. And they were overjoyed. They understood supply and demand. Too much supply, not enough demand. And he's giving us a whole denarius. This was grace. And joyfully they went to work. Three hours later, the wealthy man came back, hired another group, said, I will give you a day's pay. Three hours later, he did it again. Three hours later, he did it again. And then with one hour left, in a 12-hour workday, he went back and he said, are you still looking for work? And a group said, yes. He said, I'll take you back and I'll give you a day's pay. And you remember at the end of the day, the wealthy landowner began to pay. I kind of picture this. The text doesn't say it, but this is what happened in my mind's eye. 
He went to the individuals who had only worked one hour first. And he gave them one day's wage, a denarius. And you can kind of see how it went down the line. The individuals who had worked 12 hours are thinking to themselves, a denarius for one hour of work. We worked 12 hours, one times 12, oh man, payday city. And they are thrilled because they're thinking they're about to get 12 denarii for one day's worth of work. But the landowner gives everyone one denarius all the way down. The person who worked one hour and the person who worked 12 hours all got the same thing. And you remember the individuals who are overjoyed 12 hours ago to be hired because there's so much supply and so little demand, and it was grace that they were going to get a day's worth of wages. They're overjoyed. Now they're ticked off. Because grace, a lot of grace, had been given to some, and although they're recipients of grace, it doesn't seem fair that someone else got more grace. And of course, grace is unmerited, undeserved. It's at the expense of another. And as you and I go into 2018, I don't think there's any topic that we ought to talk about more than about grace. Today's text is about grace. I'm going to start in the back of the text and work forward. I want to read the last three verses. Philippians 3, 12, 13, and 14. Not that I have already obtained this. What is this? Well, what precedes it, the resurrection. Not that I've already obtained the resurrection or am made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. <coughs> Brother, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind, I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now think about the text. Paul is writing the church at Philippi, that's eastern Turkey today. And the church has been infiltrated by Jewish religious leaders. In other books of the Bible, we call them Judaizers. You remember a couple of years ago, we spent almost an entire year studying the book of Galatians. There were Judaizers, there's the religious leaders, these individuals who thought they could somehow attain heaven through their own good works. You remember they kept kosher kitchens, and they were astute keepers of the law of God, not only the 613 Old Testament laws, but they kept the man-made laws, the oral traditions as well. They also bathed in mikvahs, purity baths on a regular basis. They did everything they could to somehow impress God, and as we know from the book of Galatians and other New Testament books, no matter how much you and I try to impress God, we cannot. He is holy. He is perfect. He is flawless. We are not. That's why we need grace. And so Paul decides that he's going to prove this point to the church at Philippi, Philippi by reading some of his autobiography to them to let them know how far he tried to achieve perfection on his own and failed utterly. Let's pick up back in our text. I want to read verses 4 to 9. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now let's think about this text. Paul is offering a fairly impressive list of things that he has done. He's opening up his trophy case. He's opening up his case filled with awards and rewards. (coughs) He's giving us a, a view of how he lived. He said, as a baby, my parents followed Leviticus 12.3. I was circumcised on the eighth day, not the seventh, not the ninth. I didn't worry about negative 13 degree weather. I came and was circumcised in the synagogue. That's what Paul is saying. He came out. His parents circumcised him on the eighth day. In addition, he says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. That's a pretty impressive tribe to be a part of. Benjamin gave the Jews their first king, Saul. It was kind of like saying, I'm a daughter of the American Revolution. My ancestors came over on the Mayflower. When we go into battle, who leads? It's the Benjamites. You remember in Hosea 5 and Judges 5, going into battle, what did everybody cry out? After you, O Benjamin. So he is of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. He's a Pharisee. Now we read that Pharisee and we say, (laughs) I don't think so. But while we think of a Pharisee as a hypocrite, they didn't think that in the first century. There were only 6,000 of them for an entire nation. They knew every jot and tittle. They kept the law of God as perfectly as possible even the man-made oral traditions, which in some cases they thought were even exceeding that of God's law, they kept it and tried it. He said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. It's a strange phrase. It means that Paul could read Scripture in the Hebrew language. Most Jews knew parochial Aramaic, kind of... uh, a distant cousin of Hebrew, Paul could actually read the sacred scrolls of the Old Testament in their original language. Paul was a Rhodes scholar. He was a Harvard man. We discover that he's not only a Pharisee, he's the son of a Pharisee, Acts 23. In fact, he's a student of Gamaliel. He's a student of the most famous rabbi of his day. He's a pretty impressive individual. He's zealous, he tells us. Zealous means that he went after those who followed the way, who followed Christianity. He persecuted them. In Acts 22, we discover that he dragged people before the magistrates. He killed people. In Acts 7, he presides over the first Christian martyr of Stephen, He is zealous for Judaism. He also tells us he's blameless. 
blameless under the law. We can only imagine what is going on in his mind. He's telling us that since his bar mitzvah, age 12 or 13, he has kept the Old Testament law flawlessly. Externally, he thinks he has it all together. He's not only a Pharisee, but he's a Pharisee's Pharisee. He is blameless under the law. But then he meets Christ. He meets Christ on the road to Damascus, on the road to Syria, and his life crumbles. His trophy case is destroyed. All the things that he counted as valuable are now rubbish. He sees Christ in all of his perfection, in all of his glory, and Christ says, Saul, Saul, why are you beating against the goats? Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting Christ's followers? And suddenly Paul realizes all the things on the ledger that he had counted in the black are now in the red. And he says, I counted all as loss, as rubbish, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He understands what Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, the sixth verse. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. He thought he looked good because he was comparing himself to other Pharisees. He thought he looked good because he was comparing himself to fellow humanity. But when he sees Christ on the road to Damascus, Christ in all of his glory, all of his perfection, he sees Christ, suddenly he realizes that the very things that he thought were to his credit were actually to his detriment. Outside of a relationship with Christ, those good works were as polluted rags. And he's a defeated man. Reminds me of a woman who one day was at home and someone knocked on the door. She opened it and there was a stranger. And the stranger said to her, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And she was taken back and she was explaining this to her husband. She said after staring at him for 10 minutes, she, or 10 seconds, she just slammed the door in his face. And her husband said, well, why? Why didn't you tell her that you were the president of the missionary society and you teach Sunday school at church? And she rightly replied, that's not what he asked. It's not what he asked. It's not what Christ will ask. Someday we will stand before Christ, the end time, the eschatological judge, and he will want to know about our relationship with the living Christ and how sad that day will be for so many in the church and outside the church who have done things good things outside of a relationship with Christ and they'll be eternally lost. The most important question is whether one's name is written in the Lamb's book of life, whether we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, whether we know Christ, whether we've embraced his grace, what we cannot do for ourselves 
his mercy on our behalf. Paul, on the road to Damascus, he sees Christ in all of his glory. And he looks at his trophy case. He looks at his accomplishments. And in verses 7 and 9, he says they are all rubbish. Skubala, the rubbish. It's a colorful word. I won't even tell you how colorful. But it's colorful. It's not proper language. He says, that's, that's what my trophy case is like. It's worthless. It's rubbish. It's garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Why are his accomplishments rubbish? It's not that it's problematic that he's a Jew or of the tribe of Benjamin or could read the sacred scrolls in the ancient Hebrew language. It's not that he sought to keep the Old Testament law externally. It's none of those things. Why is it rubbish? Because he thought that by keeping them, he had a right standing before the Lord. And while trying to keep them, they were actually keeping him from a relationship with the Lord. He put his confidence in what he did rather than what Christ has done. And by placing his confidence in his works, it was as rubbish because what he does, what you do, what I do for ourselves will not lead us into the presence of a holy God. It is utterly rubbish. If some are here today trying to place one's confidence in what we are doing in order to impress a holy God, take a cue from Paul. He looks at his trophy case, an impressive trophy case, and he says, it's rubbish. It's, it's not good. It won't stand up. God is too perfect. God is too holy. God is too otherly. It's only by grace what he extends to us, and faith in him alone, his death to pay for our sin, his resurrection is the first fruit of life after death. It's faith in him that brings eternal life. And for those of us who already know Christ, it's quite possible that rubbish in our life is still keeping us from a deeper relationship with the Lord. It's one of Paul's concerns. So again, he writes in verses 8 and 9, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In this regard, I, I think of the Miracle Mile. The year is 1954. The location is Vancouver. It's the first time two men have ever run the mile under four minutes. They've both done it separately. An Australian named John Landy and someone from England named Roger Bannister they're going to run against one another. It'll be called the Miracle Mile, or the Mile of the Century, it was, as it was originally known. They lined up, the gun went off, 
And John Landy led the whole way. In fact, it was clear John Landy would win. And then at the last corner, 90 yards out, he decided to look over his shoulder to see where Roger Bannister was. And as he looked over this shoulder, Roger passed the other shoulder and legged it out and beat him to the finish line. John Landy took his eyes off the prize. He took his eyes off the goal. He took his eyes off where he was going. And it cost him. Roger ran in 358.8. And John 359.6. 0. 0.8 seconds separated them. Nobody knows John's name. Many people know Roger's name. He kept his eyes Roger on the prize, and he finished well. And that's one of the concerns that Paul has. He has a concern that we will allow the rubbish around us as Christ's followers to dissuade us, to persuade us away from the things of Christ and onto the world, onto even good things, but secondary things. That's why he says in verses 13 and 14, Brothers, Christ followers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. I press on. I strain forward. I track. I press on diocane. It's a hunting metaphor. Picture a gal who's a hunter. An hour before the sunrise, maybe earlier, she goes out to the woods. She goes out to her tree stand. She gets about 20, 22 feet up. She stays there shivering in the cold. And then the sun begins to dawn. And she searches the horizon for that elusive buck. She's seen that buck on her trail cameras. He's 11 or 12 points, depending on if you count the little nub. She wants that bad boy. And she's searching the horizon for that big buck. He's not there, but she knows he's somewhere, probably bedding down in the pines. Somewhere around 11, she organizes a drive, a drive to get him to get out of the bedding in the pines and to come out where somebody can drop him. She pursues, she stalks, she tracks. She focuses on getting the deer. That's what the word is, I press on. That's what Paul is encouraging us. He's encouraging you, he's encouraging me. He's saying that he pursues Christ, he tracks Christ, he's focused on Christ. His goal is Christ, more Christ. I press on. I forget what lies behind. I strain forward to what lies ahead. I keep my eyes on the prize of the high calling of Christ Jesus my Lord. And so he says to us, heading into 2018, whatever happened in 2017, learn from it and move on. If it was a great year, learn from it. Praise the Lord. Move on. If it was a terrible year, good riddance. Move on. 
But keep your eyes, Jeff, on the prize of the high calling of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Keep your eyes on the prize of glorifying God. Stock Christ. Pursue Christ. Track Christ. More Christ is what I need in 2018. It's a call to look at our lives, to look at our priorities, to look at our calendar, to look at what we're allowing between us and a relationship with Christ. It could be, it could be a relationship with someone else, one that we shouldn't be involved in or that needs some serious correction. Pursue Christ. It could be that we've allowed recreational pursuits or activities or sports or arts to get between us and the Lord. Pursue Christ. It could be that we've allowed our work or our financial priorities or our calendaring to get between us and the Lord. Pursue Christ. It's a call for me to examine how I've lived 2017 and see the areas of my life where had I made changes, I'd be pursuing Christ more. Some of you rightly pursue Christ well. Well done. But there might be even something else in your life to pursue him at a higher degree. Some of us perhaps have faltered and we were more on fire for the Lord last January than we are coming into this January. Pursue Christ. Track Christ. Stalk Christ. We need more Christ. Forget what lies behind. Strain forward to what lies ahead. More Christ. Let's pursue Christ. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I pray that we would pursue your Son, pursue the truthfulness about you, your morals, your values in the Word, that we would want a deeper relationship with you. Help us to pursue you more and more, greater and greater, as individuals, as a family, as a church family. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.